tonight we are beginning the book of First John, and our scripture tonight is First John chapter one. First John chapter one, just ten verses, but packed full of the life and the light that is ours in Christ. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. First John chapter one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So what is truth? Is truth a set of factoids? Is it a body of correct knowledge, a correct scientific explanation, or a logical statement devoid of fallacies? Is it a news anchor? that's reporting the facts on the ground accurately. Well, a lot of people today would say that perhaps such a thing as truth doesn't even exist or even matter. Some even mock the idea as outdated or draconian or an oppressive concept. Instead, it's my truth or your truth that is often preferred over the truth. In fact, in the gospel, in which John put Quill to scroll on before writing this book, the apostle recorded Pilate asking our Lord this very question, what is truth? He was prompted by Jesus telling him that the purpose of his incarnation was to bear witness to the truth and that everyone who is of the truth listens to Jesus. Well, in the first chapter of First John, the apostle of, of love, known for his evangelistic bent, his reclining at the Last Supper of Jesus and outrunning Peter, wants the churches in and around Ephesus and around Asian Minor to understand what truth is in the context of assurance of faith. He begins by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the words of life. 
Now, that very first word of the book, the word that, refers to the person of Jesus and all of his words and works. And the four witches, not to be confused with the Wizard of Odd witches of the North and South, and especially of the West, bring unambiguous attention to the reality of the physical, corporeal incarnation of God the Son. See, false doctrines were finding their way into the church and casting doubt on the reality of the incarnation. And in turn, this was messing with every crucial aspect of the saints' understanding of the gospel. We don't know 100% what those doctrines were or who specifically was bringing them in, but it seems likely that one target that John had in his sights for taking out was a pernicious 1st and 2nd century heresy known as docetism, which became popularized in later non-canonical writings like the false gospels of Judas and Thomas, and which we can still see today in Gnostic cults and even in Islam. Docetism essentially denied the physical reality of the Incarnation, getting its name from a Greek verb meaning to seem or to appear. So, false preachers peddling this view taught that Jesus only appeared to be genuine in his human nature. And this stemmed from a common idea in that time that flesh is evil by definition, and that it cannot therefore have any direct connection with the spiritual realm. For them, evil didn't really carry with it this sort of sobering weight of being in rebellion against a holy God. For one thing, the Greek and Roman gods were never really thought of as moral examples. They were mostly fickle and adulterous and petty. And for another, the docetic concept of evil had more to do with merely existing on a lower plane of existence than being in rebellion against God. So, for these false teachers, getting their theology more from the surrounding culture than from the word of God and the testimony of the apostles, God taking on flesh was a concept that just didn't really compute for them. It made no sense. Without Christ coming in the flesh and taking the curse of the law then, naturally, the saints were struggling with doubts and questions. How seriously does God really take our sin? How much does it really matter if we pursue holiness? And how do we know that if God does take our sin seriously, that we are reconciled to him? Well, John cuts right at the root of the problem by saying, No, I and the other apostles were there, and we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the words of life. As Dr. Riddlebarger likes to say, we have heard him with our eyeballs. Here, John is possibly alluding to, John, to Luke uh, twenty four thirty nine, where Jesus tells doubting Thomas, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And John is also contrasting himself with the other false teachers who might have been claiming to have seen God in a dream or maybe a vision or to have touched God with their mind's eye. John says no to that nonsense. He asserts himself as having a stronger testimony than them. And then in verse 2 and 3, 
We have some pleasing Greek, uh, some stylistic repetition of the seeing and hearing, and a few things additionally stand out. Firstly, the phrase, was made manifest, emerges as it bookends the beginning and end of verse 2, and the fact that this manifested word of life with the Father brings the two eternal, co-eternal persons of the Father and, and Son, it brings them to the forefront of thought. And because of that, it seems virtually impossible then in the context of eternal life and the pre-incarnate Christ with the Father to not recall John 17 and Christ's high priestly prayer. There, like our pastor spoke about this morning, there is no sign of any works meriting eternal life, but rather as children having done nothing to warrant eternal life, we merely receive all the benefits of the work of Christ in submission to the Father all the way to the cross. And this eternal life we proclaim also to you, he says, though a better rendering might be even to you, which is very likely an allusion to his Greek audience who, uh, and, and also to all of us who now benefit from the gospel going out freely to the ends of the earth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, now in verse 4, John writes, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The we, again, emphasizes his being linked with the rest of the apostles and the weight of his testimony. But he's not throwing his authority around except to protect the flock out of love. In Third John, verses 4, he echoes this thought, telling Gaius, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is John's heart. This whole book is a response of a shepherd protecting the flock. And his overall argument throughout the book is, hey, you know Christ, and you know the gospel. And brothers and sisters, my dear children in the faith, I see spiritual fruit in you as evidence that you are in Christ but you need a bit of a reminder of the message that you have already heard to put you back on sure footing. The physical incarnation of Christ, you have got to have that down pat. Without that, learning the rest of the faith is like learning to write a new language without learning the alphabet first. You have to be able to drink this milk before you can move on to the meat. As Rizzo the Rat tells Scrooge in A Muppet Christmas Carol, that one thing you must remember, or nothing that follows will seem wondrous. The physical incarnation of the Son of God really happened. He really worked the works of salvation for us, and he really spoke the words of life to us. John says, I was there. And this truth, this reality, this historical fact, is like a diamond that John now sets up so that throughout the rest of the book, he can continually sort of shine light on it and rotate it around for us. And the light refracted through that diamond then is everything that therefore happens in believers as a result of the incarnation of the words and of the works. In a short summary of the rest of the whole book, because of what Christ has done, God's people will walk in light and love. 
and then seeing light and love growing in yourself and in your church family, it'll re-bolster you in your assurance and your faith in Christ, and it'll be like an unstoppable snowball just running down a hill and picking up speed and momentum, and your faith will be continually reassured. Light and love. These two truths are the dual scaffoldings on which 1 John is structured. In the future, when we get to verses 311, we'll see, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In verse 5 now that we read, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's a nice little parallel that John builds the rest of the, of the, of the book on. In the last five verses of chapter 1 then tonight, John will unpack the first of these two aspects of walking in the light, which is walking in the humble truth of our sinful natures. And then next time, as we get into chapter 2, we'll unpack another aspect of walking in the light, which is seeking to walk in righteousness. Eventually, we'll get to walking into love, and then we'll put it all together. So, verse 5, This is the message we have heard and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's a, a double negative here in the Greek that gives this statement the idea that God has no part with darkness whatsoever. And furthermore, John is slipping another Old Testament motif in here that may cause us to consider the light of God manifested in the pillar of fire lighting up, leading Israel or his glory filling the Holy of Holies in the temple. Additionally, light is representative of God's covenant faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning in his faithfulness to his people. What follows then here, which will take us all the way to our final verse of the evening, is a series of if-then statements for us to consider. And they have a a negative, positive, negative, uh, positive structure. And they're meant to to make us think deeply about walking in the light of truth. First, if we say we have fellowship with him, and if we're walking in that darkness of which God has no part... We lie. We don't practice the truth. In other words, we do not do the truth. The idea here more is, is more than just talking the talk but not walking the walk, though. The phrase doing or practicing the truth is an allusion to a common Hebrew idiom. And so again, we have another low-key Old Testament reference without any overt citations like the rest of the apostles tend to use, because John and Shrek the ogre have something in common. They're both like onions. As you get to know John and his writings, that you find that there are layers upon layers of depth. So he says, so doing or practicing the truth is an Old Testament idiom, which is commonly translated to practice or show covenant fidelity. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it shows up in Genesis 32.11. I'm not worthy of the covenant fidelity you have shown to your servant. In Genesis 47.29, it says, please show mercy and fidelity to me. And in several other other places it shows up. 
The point is, if you say you have fellowship with God apart from Christ, you don't. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. It is only by walking in the covenant of grace that one may have fellowship with God, because it is the only through that covenant that your darkness can be made light. Well, next is the flip side. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our fellowship, then, in this covenant is with the Father and the Son, and the, and John and the rest of the apostles, as we say amen to the word of God. And our fellowship is with the rest of the church as we love one another. Well, it's hard to understate how epic it is that we are joined together with Christians now throughout the whole world and from every people group and social strata. And because of this new covenant dynamic, relationships are a huge issue in the fledgling church. Christianity brought together all types of people groups that were generally not considered equals in the culture of the first century, but who were equals in the church. You had Jews and Gentiles who used to hate each other and racial issues and social stratification, but now, in Christ, they're all called to love one another and join together as people of God, united as a family and the new true nation of Israel. So, Just getting along with one another practically was a big deal requiring wisdom on a broad range of social issues. And so if you search throughout through the the New Testament for wisdom connected with this phrase to love one another, you get a lot of results, a lot of help. The phrase is connected with being members in Christ, to speaking in truth, to bearing burdens and fulfilling the law, distinguishing sheep from goats, prayer, glory, suffering, honor, rejoicing, salt and peace, being a witness to the world, confidence in the heard message, bringing charges properly, confessing and covering sins, and harmony and affection throughout the body. The reality is that oftentimes the only thing that us Christians from all different walks of life have in common is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Our cultures and interests may differ broadly, and so it takes some intentional wisdom to love one another. But those who are in Christ all know that it is part of the disposition of our hearts now to love God's people. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, there are several kinds of people to whom this might apply. It could apply to those who think man is basically good at heart, and our environment trains us to act in bad ways contrary to our nature, but deep down, I'm a good person. For those people, there's this kind of denial that sin is a real thing. Sins are misunderstandings, or as Joel Osteen might put it, oopsie-daisies. Or there are those who see sin as sickness, like alcoholism or a family history of violence. There may be a defective family gene, 
But it's not a core problem in the makeup of my defining desires. Or it could be that I had a dramatic conversion. I had a Pentecost-like radical Holy Spirit encounter, a big tent revival transformation, and now I'm on a different spiritual plane. This happens a lot in in, uh, churches nowadays where there's a a huge distinction. They might say, oh, when when you are born again with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second baptism, you're now a a really super spiritual Christian and not a carnal Christian like those ones that haven't changed at all. But for these people, often they're tempted to say, I'm without sin. I've I've gotten this big change, and now I'm not really like everyone else. I'm, I'm walking on water above all of it. However, most likely John is referring to uh, another class of people that he's been talking about, which is those holding to that sort of spirit matter dualism, where debauchery is basically irrelevant because the gods don't care and the spirit is unrelated to what I do with my body. These are the wicked that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 6.15, where were they ashamed when they committed abomination. No, they were not all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this confession in a covenantal context, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to tell everyone all your intimate sins. This doesn't have to mean that you have a Christian confession or a testimony where it's evangelical and you always have to include the fact that you uh, used to be on drugs and now you weren't. Um, This is more talking about when a new member comes up to the front of the church and says amen to those doctrinal statements where he makes a, a public, powerful confession of faith in a covenantal context. For that person, the covenant promises apply, and as a result of the works of Christ, God can justly justify them. They can be both forgiven and cleansed. Their sins are not just, they're they're not overlooked, but they're acknowledged. They're addressed in truth as something that we loathe and that deserve judgment, but that have been dealt with on the cross. In our last verse, if we say we have not sinned, though, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Of course, we can't really make God a liar. For those who do this, what's really happening is that they make themselves out to be liars. But for those who walk in the truth, if our sins are like a coffee stain on white carpet, God didn't just put a rug over it or even just steam clean or replace the carpet. He remodels the whole house with wooden floors and a stain-resistant lacquer. The stain from original sin is gone so that no future sins can stain you. For those with a good confession of faith walking in the truth, assessing that I am a sinner and claiming that Christ and his cross are my only comfort, the problem has been completely dealt with to include future incidents. And that is your truth in Christ. Amen.